The Talk and Golf Network is proudly supported by the Golf Society. Shop designer golf apparel, shoes and accessories from the world's most exclusive and best golf brands. Online at www.thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash talk and golf. I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrews, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 34 of the Talking Golf History Podcast, and part two of the history of Dr. Alistair McKenzie, with our special guest, the Director of Grounds at the Meadow Club, Sean Tully. We jump in where we left off in episode 33. In my mind, McKenzie had at least five major inflection points in his career. The Boers War was certainly one of them. Another occurred with the whole design contest in Country Life magazine in 1914, something we now call the Lido competition. What exactly was that contest? So... At this point, um, C.B. McDonald, um, you know, most noted for um, National Golf Links of America, uh, both he and uh, Seth Rayner were going to build this golf course, and it was called Lido, and to, to garner more attention to the property, they devised, um, or probably McDonald devised the plan to have this competition and it was, it was published in, I think June of 1914 and they had 70 people sign up for it. And it was judged by, um, I know Bernard Darwin. Yeah. Darwin, um, Fowler, Herbert Fowler. And it was, um, Hutchinson, one of the Hutch, one of the HOH guys, or I can't, think of as i just recognize hutchinson or the other guy but um so those three guys were the judges and of the 70 entrants um there was one guy that he withdrew his his drawing it was tom simpson he didn't want to um have look like he had an impartial judge with uh fowler his his um his uh partner so unfortunately uh, fowler didn't resign (laughs) but but um, we do, you know, then the next, I think the next issue, they actually showed Thompson's, or Tom, I keep calling him Thompson. It makes Simpson. it quicker. But, no, that's um, right, Simpson's. yeah, that's right. Just combine them. <laughs> Tom um, Simpson from now on will be Thompson, folks. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, so they, they had this thing. I mean, it was, you know, a hole of so many yards. Um, it was like 360 to 450 or something, a par four. And, you know, McKenzie's drawing, when you look at all the other ones, it's way more elaborate. You know, Spectacular. He, yeah. It's, 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 it's crazy. And, um, you know, and I think they mentioned, you know, most of, most of the drawings 
they they in their review in in the August issue, they review the, you know each of the drawings and they kind of talk about most of the holes were dog legs, and a percent most of the holes were within you know four twenty to four fifty. So they were all longer. You know, it just seems like everybody wants to make us walk more, even back then. And um, yeah, so lo and behold, Alistair McKenzie wins the competition, and the winner gets um, twenty pounds, and he also gets his design to to be incorporated into this the, the design of the Lido comp- of the Lido Golf Club. Yeah, in Long which Island, becomes which becomes its eighteenth hole. Correct. And it it doesn't get named the McKenzie Hole. It doesn't get named anything but the Home Hole, which kind of robs him a little bit of any more luster. But um, ironically, um, you know, Tom Simpson, he his drawings in uh, an, uh, an issue later, uh, the next issue I think, and his route his hole was used. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that, that Simpson's hole was used as well. A lot of people focus on McKinsey's, but Simpson's was also used. So then also, you know, you're familiar with Rainer's prize dog leg? Yes. So do you know where that comes from? I don't know. I know. So, yeah, go ahead. So this is, you know, some people have speculated that it was, he had put in an entry, but... I don't think he could have because it was for his golf course that he was working on. But, um, but it was, so there was another golf course, ocean links, which is next to another golf course that Newport. I'm not even going to try to remember Newport, right? Newport, that, yep. Yeah. Right, it was right next door is a nine hole course. Yeah. So later on, this is, I, I've got the newspaper articles. It was like Taylor, Taylor or whatever. Taylor, maybe. Um, he they did a competition, a Lido like competition, and Seth Rainer's Rainer Seth Rainer's prize dogleg won that, and they really? used that in I that route. I did not know that story. Yeah, and I can't find anything beyond these two articles, and it's just killing me because, I mean, I would love to see the the other seventy um, drawings that were that didn't absolutely well, seventy, right? but the other sixty at least, and to see if anybody else was in there because. Back in the day, you know, they did a. This wasn't just a one-off. There was, Chick Evans did a thing in Chicago, uh, the Golfers Magazine, and they had it where you they gave you a property and you had to design a golf course, um, based on the land and the lake, and you know there was all this stuff on there, but, you know, the Lido competition. It, it's 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 interesting that we give it so much credit today, because something. A little more serious happened <laughs> right after he won, and you know he won. I think it was end of July, and the, the and then the issue came out. I think it was in August. I, I wrote. I have a timeline of this whole thing somewhere, and um, something else happened. Some guy got shot, <laughs> and World War One started. So it's and it's all within a week, and it's like how many people even had the time to sit down and read the Lido competition or even right. give it a passing thought beyond, wow, this is a cool hole. So, so but, from a Country Life magazine standpoint, I mean, mm-hmm. are, do you think it it possibly didn't do much for his career? I mean, following that, you know, was it Duke Ferdinand? I can't remember who the yeah. – uh, uh, who got shot that started essentially the, the war. Uh, are you saying that it, it possibly didn't do as much 
give him as much credit because of what followed. I'm, it's more, I'm just speculating. I'm no, no, I totally guy. understand. So, yeah. no, but at the right. same time, it's like, it's very interesting Makes sense. that, you know, nobody's ever, I don't know if anybody's, I mean, that's what we do when we do our timeline. We're always constantly looking at things like this because how much of an impact does it really have? How much free time do people have? Or people like, oh, I got to run out and buy the, the latest Country Life magazine to see how, who came in first in that Toledo competition. But, but at the same time, he did win it, and you know, unfortunately, he didn't beat out Tom Simpson, but he couldn't have because he didn't fully enter. But um, and you know, Simpson's drawing's pretty cool, and it it definitely looks like something that belongs on a McDonald Rainer course, whereas. You know, what's interesting, you know, Rayner went and used the Lido hole at Olympic. When he came in in 1718, they, Rayner came to California and, and uh, did a routing for Olympic, which would have been nice. Um, the crazy thing, this is crazy. I know I'm, I'm getting into uh, Tony's area of expertise. Oh, right. Tony really screwed up the whole podcast, so you're fine. Take over. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry, Tony. That was a joke. Um. So when when Rainer came out to California and when he did the Lido, when he did the Lido when he did well he did the Lido hole at Olympic Club, where did he stay? He stayed at this is crazy. He stayed at the new clubhouse at San Francisco Golf Club in nineteen eighteen. Oh really? Yeah, I found a newspaper article mention of him staying there, and it was like, wow. I mean, because that would have been right around the time that uh, Tillinghast was there in nineteen. 19- no, that was when it opened. So let me back that up. I'm, now I'm getting into the San Francisco stuff. I always do that. But um, it would have been, I mean, Rainer could have easily been the architect for San Francisco having stayed there in 1918 because Tillinghast doesn't get there until the first reference I have him in is November 1919. But going back, you know, we got Rainer's using a Lido hole. So he's impressed by the design of the hole. And he's reusing it. He used it at uh, Yemen's. That was one of the reasons I went to Yemen's. And um, just to see how he used it. And, I'm, you know, and that's, there's another reason I went there, too, was to see what Rainer was doing in 1924-25 on his run-up to possibility of that other course that he didn't get yeah. <laughs> at Cypress Point. No, it's, yeah. And I, you have the plans for Rainer, right? You found those? We asked you to do that on uh, the podcast yeah, I, with Anthony. You have those. I got, I got them scanned. And, uh, <laughs> hold on. I'm holding He's on. He's just going to hold on. Just wait for yeah. the right time. You know, right, They've waited right this long time. to be shown. I don't know That's if right. they need to be Yeah, 100th anniversary seems like a pretty good time to kick those out. You got some years. I heard that. That's, yeah. yeah. Drives book sales. That's right. <laughs> so, um McKenzie's award-winning Alito hole was essentially in effect from, uh, what, 1917 to 1942 when Alito officially closed down. Uh, two years later after that, um, McKenzie joins forces with Harry Colt and Charles Allison to form the design firm Colt McKenzie Allison. How did these three great designers come together? Do we know that story? Well, McKenzie and Colt started off even earlier than that. I mean, they're... They're, they came together. Be, wait a minute. How did that work? Um, it's been a while since. Uh, so all Woodley, Colt came in to verify McKenzie's work. So that's 1906-07. And what's really interesting, you know, for me, 
um, I'd be interested to hear what Adam has to say about. Yeah, Colt. he'll be on next month. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really want to learn more about Colt, and especially I mean all these guys. Obviously, I can't stop. But um, what's really, I, it almost feels like, you know, they they joined up at the end of the war, 1919, and you know there can't be a lot of prospects. Um, sure. It's not like, hey, let's start building golf courses again. I mean, people are putting their lives back together and, you know, whole villages have lost almost all their men. Um, in some, some places I can, I can only assume. And it's like, Hey, we're not ready to play golf yet. So in, in 1920, Allison does come over to the States and I've found a couple of references where it's Colt McKenzie are to follow, which kind of makes sense. Like we just talked about, it's like how much golf is going to be built in 1920 in the UK. But, um, in a, in a way, it's almost. I've 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 heard some people say that they were actually even in a partnership, they were still competing for some of the same jobs. So it wasn't like, um, it it almost is like, hey, you take, um, Colt will take London, McKinsey will take, um, everything north of that, and Allison go to Japan. But that's way later. I'm sorry. <laughs> that was a no, joke. that's all right. But um, I need to again. I need to learn more about Allison. But yeah. um. Do we do we know if Harry Colt had any influence on Alistair McKenzie? He had to have. I mean, you know, given McKenzie was he was you know armchair architect coming out of the coming out of his place in all at in Leeds, um, and and from what I've read, it kind of goes back and forth how people relate them. You know, one says this; they don't necessarily call him a student, but they. They kind of say that McKenzie's getting up there with Colt, or or they start off with McKenzie versus Colt. But um, it's really interesting, and you know, it it almost seems like they're trying to be more regional in some aspects. But um, what's really crazy is um, doing my research in California for on on the city of San Francisco, trying to figure out Sharp Park and Harding and all this stuff. The of all the people and all the firms that could have been referenced as somebody to reach out to, November of 1921, the city of San Francisco was given the name of Colt, McKenzie, and Allison to build their golf courses. That just blew me away. I'm yeah. like, what the hell is this doing in here? Right. And the hell told them to talk to these guys because this is ridiculous. Um, we're talking, you know. This that's the crazy thing. You got Tillinghast. We're talking. What did I say? 1921. Tillinghast was just in San Francisco in 2021, and and Fowler's here, and here they are trying to get Colt, McKenzie, and Allison, and that just that that's just amazing. And and for me, you know, this, you know, I get all these of the questions I get is. Who got McKenzie to California? And I have two answers, but every, I mean, Claremont's going to say it was McDonald Smith. I've never seen anything where those two guys are ever connected or talked about. I've got more between him and Hagen than I've got uh, Walter Hagen than I do even with Donald Smith. But, and then, you know, you know, some people, people will just say anything, especially to affiliate it to, you know, their golfer or somebody, but, um, 
Who was the other one? You said McDonald Smith, and who was the other? Yeah, McDonald Smith, and so that's the, that's some of the speculation. And then there was um, there was somebody else. But um, for me, after seeing that, it, it kind of makes more, it makes way more sense because when McKinsey comes to California. There's two things he does almost immediately. He starts looking at golf courses in the city, and he meets with Robert Hunter. So for me, it's Robert Hunter or a combination of those two together. Because um, um, one of the things that happens when McKenzie comes to California is um, Robert Hunter was kind of acting as his agent when he got here and looking for work for him. He kind of, he was hoping for more and he kind of, I have a letter where he complains about that. He's like, I feel more like an agent, but he kind of was acting as an agent looking for work. Um, maybe for himself because, you know, you know, by this point he was already, you know, he had already, you know, 25, he had already written, um, the, the links, mag, uh, the links magazine, the links book, um, that he's famous for. Um, and, um, but it's 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 really interesting that here we have you know Colt McKenzie and Allison all the way over here, but then um, you know w- there's always a reference to Burning Tree. I was just going to get there. I, I, actually, I'll jump into it right now if that's all right. I said one of the things that we come across quite often in golf's history is confusion. Right, a good example of that is the design of Burning Tree in Maryland. Uh, modern day records attribute it, many attribute it, I should say, to Dr. Alistair McKinsey, uh, which other than the one hole at Lido would make Burning Bush uh, and maybe Melrose Country Club and PA his first American designs, if you believe some. And yet I've seen other sources which give the design credit to Allison. Who designed these courses? Do we know? Yeah. So, you know, definitely for Burning Tree, um, Alice, I mean, we McKinsey was not in in the States in 1920. Um, that's a given, but there's letters and there's newspaper references to him coming out. And so Allison comes first and then Colt and McKenzie are going to follow. That doesn't happen. And this happened, you know, when Fowler came out, Simpson was supposed to come with him, but Simpson went continental and went to France. So um, Fowler came to, you know, he went to Eastward Ho and then went out to Presidio and dabbled out here. But, um, so that happened, you know, there was, and that's been, there's been confusion, you know, people are like, you know, where's Simpson? Why are we seeing any Simpson stuff? Well, he never made it. It says he was coming, but he never made it. And so at the, you know, when, when you know a firm is at your place and you look at all the names on there and depending on when Burning Tree wrote their club history, I'm making an assumption here not to besmirch them by any means, but this is a common thing that happens is, oh, look, here's the name of the firm. And then everybody's looking at it, and they may only recognize the one name. And you know, most likely it's McKenzie because of the course they did in Georgia. Yeah, um, absolutely. People seem to know that one. Yeah. Not everybody seems to know Cypress Point, which shocks me, but everyone knows Augusta National. Yeah. But but there you and then, and then and, and not so what happens though is people see that name and they that's where the chronology comes into play is because so many people were attra- attaching the name to things and trying to you know 
we want our course designed by McKinsey because we only recognize him because, heck, he did Augusta National. That means we're connected to Augusta now through the history timeline. And, you know, it's not like we're trying to um, um, rain on everybody's parade, but not everybody can have their course designed by Alistair McKinsey. And there's still a lot of other good architects out there. Yeah. I, and and both of those, Colt and Allison, are fantastic. Colt's, you know, I just... It, 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 but you're right. People will gravitate to the easiest name to know and, and to remember. And if you have those three, at least in the United States, it would be, be a different story, obviously, in Europe. Uh, but, you know, they gravitate towards the one they know. It's pretty damn impressive to have any one of those guys at I your agree, place. Right. I think it, poor Allison gets left out of the limelight, yeah, quite a bit, which is even, which is a tragedy. Yeah. Um, so after nearly two decades of designing or redesigning golf courses in England, Dr. Alistair McKenzie makes a huge pivot in his career in the mid to late 1920s. And this takes him to Australia, New Zealand, and the United States. What do we know about this trans- transition in his career, Tolly? What we can say about McKenzie is he definitely, definitely was engaged. And it seems like I mean, it's not like he was running away. He didn't have, I mean, everybody wants to talk about mistresses and all these other things. Or he, he, it wasn't his wife. He, he didn't have his wife, wife with him and he didn't have a secretary or something. So there's, you know, there's all these stories. I don't get into that. Um, and I'm not trying to, to paint him, um, on a golden throne or anything like that. But, um, I would say it's opportunity and the challenge in, you know, to be able to, you know, Australia, you know, to, he basically had all that work lined up through Royal Melbourne and, you know, they, they got their cut and, you know, the more golf courses he saw, the more money he made and heck, I get to go to Australia and then, you know, New Zealand isn't bad either. I hear. <laughs> and, um, it's his opportunity. I mean, he had carte blanche. I mean, when he got there, everybody wanted him because nobody else was there. Um, not to say that, you know, I'm not besmirching uh, Alex Russell at all, Neil, <laughs> Neil Crafter. Who, um, if anybody hasn't looked at his book on, on Alex Russell, it's amazing. It's, it's um, again, I think we, we talked briefly about it was, you know, getting him getting there, you know, you know, was so much opportunity and you know maybe you know at some point maybe he was rubbing some people the wrong way in england you know you look at some of his reports on some of the courses he didn't really hold back he kind of told them that the golf course needs to improve and he might yeah he was he was telling them you know what they needed to do and some people didn't i'm sure he he rubbed some people the wrong way so his marks on the landscape of Australia are felt internationally even today. Mm-hmm. How important do you think this work is to his legacy? I mean, he's got Augusta National and Cypress Point, but his work in, in Australia is just different also. Mm-hmm. I mean, we spoke a little bit about the bunkers literally coming up to the edge of the greens. Yeah. How, how much does Australia shape in the history of McKinsey? Quite a bit. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's easier to point to that than it is to, I mean, well, it would take you a while to catch up on Augusta to catch up on what was there then and what's there now. So it, it's it's a much better study. Um, 
And there, you know, I think what course is it I have? I think it's the the plans for Titarangi. You can see where he has the old greens and tees and stuff, which is when I, when you can see that kind of stuff on, you know, there's not everybody does it, you know, San Francisco, they have that on one of their plans and I've seen it on a couple other where you can sit there and you can actually in Presidio, Fowler had it at Presidio. You can see where the old greens were, the old tees were and what he did instead. And, um, that comes back to the whole attribution thing, um, that we were talking about, a while back is, um, and I do take some umbrage. I, I, I don't want to, it sounds like we're picking on Tony, but, um, <laughs> let's do it. I was, I, that was where I was going yeah. next. Uh, my, my next question was literally, you know, it's fairly well known that Mackenzie traveled to Australia, mm-hmm. sorry. Uh, but he did not see all the projects through to completion. Mm-hmm. Right. So if, if we looked back at the podcast I have with Anthony and his, um, I'd say his strict sense of ownership mm-hmm. from an architectural standpoint, I don't want to speak for Anthony, but I would, I would think that he'd take perhaps some umbrage that some of those golf courses in Australia weren't in fact pure McKinsey's. Correct. Would you, I, yeah, mean, would I, you, I, I don't know if that's fair. Anthony's not here to defend himself. So screw him. We're going after him hard. Yeah. We don't, we don't need him on there. <laughs> Sorry, Cause then this will be like 20 episodes. Uh, yeah, yeah uh, that'd be great. Um, so yeah, so how how would you look upon that? Because he 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 went in and made his marks up, and he drew up the course, and then he basically skedaddled. Yeah. So is it a McKinsey course? I guess it's the first question behind. So that. when I look at a golf course, I'm not an architect, but I'm a historian, and when I look at stuff, I want to know who put the original, who designed the original course. You know, find the plans and then hopefully find an aerial to make sure that everything was built the way it was. But that person built the golf course. And everybody else that comes in behind them is stuck with that. And unless they go in and doze the whole place and start fresh, that first architect or whoever was responsible and enforces their hand on everybody else's decisions. So... um, so McKenzie comes in and he looks at a golf course that was designed by Bill. Well, I don't, I don't know any, I can't think of who would have designed some of the courses. I can't think of the names, but McKenzie comes in, designs it and makes all these change or makes all these changes to the golf course based off of what he can do to Bill's routing to make it work and make it better. And anybody that comes in after that is, also having to deal with Bill and Alistair and whoever comes in after. So to say, um, I think uh, Tony was picking on Sleepy Hollow and saying it's no longer a Charles Blair McDonald course. I would say that it still is because everything that was done to that was done with the understanding of the original routing, having, um, forced everybody's hand beyond that. And, you know, obviously some people will move things and change it and then it might go back to what it was in a restoration or a renovation or um, like in the case with the eighth hole at Augusta where, um, what's his name, that one guy, Byron Nelson redid, you know. The history gets, it gets really confusing, but if you really, you can't do due justice to a golf course if you don't, Look at the history because 
you know, if somebody were, were to come up here and go, this is an original Alistair McKinsey course, look at this bunker on nine, it doesn't make any sense. And it's like, well, that's not the original bunker. This is something that somebody else did. So it changes the way the course is. But, you know, when you're trying to understand the work that's been done on a, on a given golf course, it, it can get really confusing. And um, you know, there are certain courses that, you know, that's where it comes in where, you know, McKenzie designed this golf course. And it's like, prove it. How can you prove that he designed it? And um, there's certain courses. I mean, for me, I, I feel like Claremont is more of a Robert Hunter course than a, a McKinsey course. And and that's just me looking at the routing. Not not so much the routing because, again, that was um, the work of other people. And But the bunkering, the way the bunkering was done, because there's an aerial that was done shortly after the work. And, um, you know, the period of this work is, you know, California, McKinsey bunkers the hell out of everything. And, you know, as, as he goes further along, you know, comes back from Argentina and, you know, depression's fully on. Um, and he's working with Jones, things change. I don't know um, if it was uh, the economy of construction, design, and maintenance. During the Great yeah. Depression, too. Yeah, if that yeah. was all taken in and factored in. But I think they were just refining their, their, their trade or their, um, their work. But again, it's again. I think it's important. I mean, that, that's the whole reason Witten and um, Cornish have that book, Cornish and Witten's book. Um, you know, you look at a, at the what is it, um, Denver Country Club, and I don't know. They might have thirty names at the, after at the end of that that have ta- that have made changes to that golf course. I mean, even places. I mean, I've been. I was just talking with Brian Snyder about Hollywood, and it's like. How much of this is attributed to, to Travis? Who did the work before, and how do we get back to what Travis did? And how do we know this is Travis's work based on aerials that were taken, you know, twenty years after the after he after he died? And uh, so there's there's just so many questions. And when you try to go into a golf course and study it, even greens. I mean, we sit there and you know talk about Perry Maxwell's greens or anybody else's greens. We've changed them. I can tell you, you know, greenkeepers, you know, we see that change over the years with the bunker blast and the sand building up on bunkers. And, you know, everybody talks about Pinehurst number two changing and, you know, becoming domed. And, you know, Pete Dye talks about them driving the sand into the middle of the green and dumping it and then spreading it out. I mean, that's going to have an effect. And, but then it, it becomes embraced and, now, you know, you just see more and more. Now it's part of the character of that course, right? And totally. It's, it just, but again, we, you know, people weren't going out and GPSing and getting elevations of everything. I mean, maybe there are some that have it and that'd be awesome. But um, so much has changed. You know, they talk about finality and golf design. The golf is, you know, the golf course is done. It's never done. It's, I mean, that's, um, you talk about some of the, who was it? Um, I just listened to, maybe it was George, George Waters. And Derek did that. Did you listen to that podcast yet? That was really good. I haven't listened to that one I yet, think no. they were talking, um, he was talking to Doke about the bunkers at whatever course he was at. He was at a lot of them. Um, and, you know, this course is going to look better in a couple of years once it matures and the edges change and, and take on a more natural shape. Um, 
the, everything evolves and it's in you got to make sure it's not meant to stand in time yeah really, and as much as but, anything you know kind of getting back to the one of the challenges of maintaining a, a mckenzie course is or any course is you know the sand splash if it's if it's like three feet taller then you need to knock it down and but then if you don't knock it down in time then everybody's like this is great <laughs> this is challenging and it becomes something yeah, totally and different. It, it, and it morphs into something completely different. And it becomes something that, you know, if the architect were still alive, would come through and go, that's not at all what I was thinking, guys. What are you doing? And and the response would probably be, well, I don't know what we're doing. It looks good. <laughs> you like it. So there's not yeah, there's no rhyme happened. or reason to it. I don't know what it. you're talking about. So let's let's talk about after uh, Australia. So a year later um, he he comes to the United States and he's designing mm-hmm. Meadow Club. Let me ask you this: Do you consider Meadow Club to be his first true American golf design? Yes. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I do, and I, I'll I'll be honest. I was doing the research, and you know, you you mentioned Melrose Country Club. You know, that was, and there's articles about that where um, so Perry Maxwell was involved there, and when McKenzie first came in, I think it was already, you know under construction and whatnot. And he went out and looked at it. And then as they came across, you know, they stopped, they came on the train on his way to California. They stopped in Oklahoma and looked at some of his work there. And, um, and then he came out to California and one of the, you know, Hunter was already sitting out here, um, waiting for him. And, and, um, they went, Hunter had, a, he had, his house was, um, Casa de, oh man, Casador, which is House of the Hunter in Spanish. Oh, yeah. I like that. Didn't know that. Very and cool. um, right, it's behind the second green at Pebble Beach. And uh, so he lived there. And I think at one point, Black, is it Black Velvet, the movie with Elizabeth um, Taylor? Yeah. It might have been Taylor. filmed there. I'm not sure. I can't, I, I shouldn't have brought it up, but I don't like to be wrong. Um, if I can help it, but, um, it was very, one of those houses there, but I, I thought it was his later on, but, um, so he, he comes out to California and, um, and almost right away they're, they're talking about medical, but then this course called Los Madanos pops up and I'm, it's like right about the same time. And I'm like, what the hell is this? Where the hell is this? Yeah. I don't know. And I'm this getting story. all nervous. Yeah. I'm like, Oh my God, this is. This is go time. We're the second. Like, you know, some people would be like destroying all the evidence and everything, but it, yeah, there are some like that. We've run across those people, haven't we? It, I believe it became um, the whatever the course is. It's I think it's already closed now. It just closed a couple of years ago. Um, I can't remember the name of it. It's in the East, it's over by Pittsburgh. Um, it was in the formation, and we ended up still beating it. Um, even if it, it never, never got built. But, um, I mean, as soon as he got out here to California, when he comes out to the Bay area and, um, there was a newspaper reference and it kind of, it kind of made me a little nervous, but it was like his first two months, he, he saw at least 19 golf courses. And I don't know if it was like, like I see him going, there's a newspaper article where he's out at Lincoln park, which is a city owned course again, which ties into that whole 1921 thing that I mentioned with the uh, Colt Allison and McKenzie. And um, 
so what happens is McKenzie comes out and they start the American Golf Course Construction Company. And he does that with his brother, Charles. And Hunter does it with his son, Robert Hunter Jr. And they start up the firm, American Golf Course Construction Company, which is basically the sister company to the British Golf Course Construction Company that Charles was in charge of. And um, Charles comes over, gets them started. Um, at Meadow Club, they were trying to get Hunter to be the, the lead guy on the job, but he was pretty young and out of school. And everybody, everybody at Meadow Club's like, no, <laughs> he's never built a golf course and, and this and that. And they ended up bringing um, John from Olympic Club. His, well, his, his son became the superintendent of Olympic Club. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Anyway, um, he came out and became the, uh, the lead on the, the construction work. And, um, and you know, McKenzie, I, I, just recently I found some new magazine or newspaper articles where they mentioned, you know, they met at the university club in the city to start the, 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 the Meadow Club or Meadow Club of Tamalpais was the original name. Um, we, we changed the name in 36 when we filed for bankruptcy. They came out and um, two holes, they always mentioned two holes being copies or template holes. Um, for um, one of them was the Eden hole or the high end hole, which is our fifth hole. And then they say uh, the Redan, a Redan hole. And we're still, we're still really? trying to figure out which one that is. Yeah, which one? Um, 14's got a little Redan action, but the green doesn't, I mean, it doesn't fall away. Eight barely has a little hill to bounce the ball off of, but it does fall away. Um, so it's, as McKenzie even says, he's not into the template stuff so much, even though he kind of built a, a Redan and the Gibraltar <laughs> at Moortown, just yeah. named it something different. But um, was at Meadow Club was that was that the first time that they had really worked together, Robert Hunter and yeah, McKenzie? Good question. Um, so when I, I got into the research, when I first got here, I introduced myself to the historian and I asked him what he had and. And uh, Dr. Nelson, who is he's a member of the um, uh, the McKenzie Society, um, and he he was one of the the member um, one of the the few people that um, were going went through um, Haddock's or McKenzie or Haddock's desk, and they found the Spirit of St. Andrews, the manuscript. So he's been he's been going at it for quite a while, and um, so I I just. You know, got some ideas from him, um, what to research, and and um, I dug into, I, I I get in a little too deep as it, it's I think I've already made that obvious, um, but I, I did research on all the members, all the board members, and founding members. One of them was um, Benjamin Harrison Dublee, and he was. It looks like his daughter went to school with Robert Hunter's daughter at Branson, which is a pretty big school in our area here. Um, and, and then the landscaping at his house was done by somebody, um, Dawson from the Olmstead firm. And then oh, wow. yeah. his home was designed by 
John White, who is the brother-in-law to it's um, Bernhard Maybeck, the arts and crafts style. So we have an arts and crafts style clubhouse. And um, so he basically was our connection to everybody that was involved. And he had letters between he and Robert Hunter. Um, I was probably the fifth person to read those considering, you know, they read them and, you know, maybe a secretary or whatnot or what have you. And um, it was amazing. It was the, the correspondence between these two guys and talking. That's where I got the quote from, you know, Hunter talking about um, McKenzie. Um, he, he felt like he was more of an agent for McKenzie. And through the process of, the, of all the work and everything that was done here, by the end of it, it was McKenzie and Hunter um, partnership um, had developed. And, uh, and it, it makes a lot of sense given – you know, Hunter's background and what he brought to the table. And, uh, you know, they, they were quick. I mean, you know, as soon as they were, they were here, they were already putting in it. They had an ad in the paper for work at Cal club in 27. They're actually doing work at Cal club on the 11th hole during the California open. <laughs> so there was a match between Willie Hunter and somebody else and they had construction on 11. So they had to play over it. <laughs> So just Amazing, a little different, right? Everything was, it was a little bit more, let's just play golf and let's get out there. You know, yeah. we're, Hey, we're doing this work here at Cal club. Do, do we know anything about the correspondence from McKinsey on his relationship with Robert Hunter? Like, do we have an understanding of what that relationship was? Man, like? I would love to have some of it uh, because right? of, you know, everybody's like, how in the heck did these two guys develop enough friendship to be partners. But I mean, you know, we definitely know McKenzie was not a fan of socialists of which Hunter was, um, yeah. you know, wore it on his sleeves or sleeve. And, um, I mean, I think he wouldn't have voted for Bernie. That's what you're saying then. Right. It's a non Bernie. <laughs> and, and, uh, I mean, shoot in the, but at the end of the day, you know, McKenzie was just as involved and interested in the economics. And I mean, I've got him down at um, in one of the San, Santa Cruz papers. Um, I think Bob found it, and or Neil, and um, in there it was him talking to the Rotarians or whatever they call it. And uh, he talked about you know how he felt the the British. Were, were unfair to their soldiers or weren't looking after the soldiers training. This is in 1930. So he was still kind of hammering on it. Wow. But then, yeah. you know, when he went to Australia, he came, he wrote a, a whole article about his, you know, his experience in America and traveling around the world. And when he went back to England, when he went back to England, um, probably I would assume almost every time he went back, um, it would make sense. He, he was a member of the Leeds economic council or something. And, um, he gave a talk about his experience of being in the United States um, and shared, you know, all about the automobile and, you know, society and stuff like that. It's so it kind of makes sense when you start wrapping that all up that you can see that they, you know, sometimes, you know, as in marriage, you can you can marry somebody that you have totally different belief systems, but you get along so well that you kind of just skimp over that part and you these guys were into design of golf courses so much that I, I don't think they cared what the other guy, I mean, I'm sure I, I can only imagine when they got done working all the things they could have talked about. 
But, um, I mean, you know, one of the things McKenzie was really good at is he, he always picked a good partner. And, uh, yeah, he did. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's famous for his partners, yeah. right. And help, help them make their own mm-hmm. little way in life in architecture. Yeah. I mean, I'm in, I'm enamored by Robert Hunter. Um, one was contacted by Al- Alan Brawley, um, who has since passed, um, amazing man. Um, he was a sociologist at Arizona state university and he reached out to me. He was writing a book about Hunter. It's called, um, the millionaire socialist. And, uh, and he didn't know that he designed golf courses and it was blown away that here he is. Here's this guy that he'd been studying, you know, poverty. I mean, Hunter wrote the book on poverty in 1903 and sat down with Teddy Roosevelt because of what he wrote in, you know, it was like one of the best up until that point. Nobody had written a book that looked at poverty the way that he did. And it really um, put him out there. And, I mean, he was running with a different crowd. I mean, when he got married in 1903, um, he married into the Anson Phelps Stoke family, which he's a robber baron from the late 1800s. Um, when he got married, um, when they got married, not – when he married his daughter, <laughs> sorry, um, um, they were given a $10 million gift, which is, well, probably well over a hundred wow. million dollars. Yeah. And amazing amount of money. Though. Where do they go on their honeymoon? Um, they go to England and they go to Russia and they meet Tolstoy on that trip. <laughs> I'm wow. sure I can only imagine that what Anson Phelps was thinking, hey, yeah, we're in Russia. We're hanging out with Tolstoy. He's like, oh, my goodness. So, But, you know, Hunter was, you know, he ran on the socialist ticket in, I think, 1910 in Connecticut. How are these two partners? Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> right? I mean, Polar opposites. What's, what's really crazy is, you know, Hunter um, was writing all these books and he definitely had some health conditions and they're like, you need to get out and do more. And one of the things he was doing was riding a horse and up in, um, wherever there's a town they lived up there. I can't think of it in Connecticut, but, um, he goes and rides the horse and he falls off and he breaks something or whatever. And they're like, you can't ride horses anymore. And he ends up taking up golf. So thankfully he fell off that horse. But what's crazy is, I, I'm doing research, and I just I just happened to type in um, I don't even know how I found it. I was link golf links route, routing, you know what you're doing when you do all the newspaper research. And all of a sudden, in like the late in the mid 1800s, I mean this is crazy. Anson Phelps Stokes had a private golf course on his property, and I'm just like, holy crap, this is crazy. One that. Somebody, I mean, that just tells you how much money the guy had. But I'm like, why did they tell him to? Why did they tell Hunter to go ride a horse? He should have been playing golf with his his father-in-law. <laughs> well, probably because he was a socialist. Probably didn't yeah. like his father. Well, that's the thing is, I mean, right? we have. Yeah. I mean, I can't. You know, obviously there was a negative connotation to socialism even then, but there was more. I mean, there was still a lot more people that were socialists. I mean, ten percent of Connecticut yeah. was going to vote oh, for a sure. socialist. I mean, we got Wisconsin. I'm from Wisconsin, so there's another one there. But yeah, um, 
you know what I, I find more as fascinating as anything, and, and I think you see more of it back then than you do today. I could be wrong on this, but the amount of great golf course architects that literally fell into the profession. You know, Seth Rayner as an engineer, Robert Hunter as a socialist, right? Who's writing books on poverty. Um, you know, you have our story that we're talking about today. McKinsey is a surgeon mm-hmm. in the war and gets this craze and uses tactics that the enemy that we're using against England to basically rewrite designing golf courses. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's fascinating how diverse backgrounds these folks have that got into golf course architecture that didn't necessarily come from the traditional model uh, prior to the golden age of golf, which were the golf yep. professionals laying out golf and courses. And we're much better for it. That, to me, is extremely interesting. <laughs> how much better huh? are we for it, too? I mean... Right. The, oh, absolutely. And, I mean, I mean Tom Bendelow and all that stuff. I mean, yes, later on he designed some amazing things, but... Um, it took, you know, again, we, we talk about the dark ages. It, it took a long time. I mean, it took, you know, 15 years, 10, 15 years to get out of that period and to start design, you know, designing golf courses that look more natural. Um, and, and then some guys were really good at it. And then, you know, some other guys kind of, you know, you got your McDonald, Rayner, uh, Langford, Moreau guys that kind of still, held on to that engineered look, but man, um, the Langford stuff is just amazing, but that's yeah, a whole nother podcast. I mean, too. They were beautiful shapers of the ground. Weren't <laughs> What's they? that? I said, they were just beautiful oh, shapers of yeah. the ground. It's, and I think what's great about the golden age too, is you have basically these two different styles of golf going on at the, or design at the same time. You have uh, what you'd call like the naturalists, mm-hmm. right? And then you'd have like these shapers and movers, mm-hmm. Uh, where they're sculpting land, you know, Langford Moreau, uh, Rayner, McDonald, and then you have kind of everybody else using mm-hmm. nature is deciding how the golf course gets laid well, out. And I don't know. To me, I just, I think there's a, a diversity there that not to knock modern architecture because I am a, a naturalist, mm-hmm. but I think it's good to have both. I think that was, that's what makes that golden age so golden. Mm-hmm is that you don't just have natural landforms every single time. You have people doing, you know, I, I think people called Charles Blair McDonald insane mm-hmm. or crazy to think that he could reshape a, a, a random piece of land and take these, you know, template holes, sorry, Anthony, or uh, ideal holes and bring them to America on this, you know, piece of property. And I think that's that's what's so beautiful about that. And I think we lack that a little bit because I think when we see people shaping the land now, um, I think there's a little bit more judgment that people shouldn't be doing it. And I would argue that diversity is always the best policy when it comes to golf design. Let's not all paint the same. Yeah, picture. I mean, I I I'm not very diverse when I when I look for a golf course, I'm looking for something that's old, and I get. Some people that know me well enough are like, I can't believe you played Cordoval twice in two days. And I'm like, I don't yeah. know why I did it either. Um, not to pick on that. I mean, it's just too modern, no, no, too I much cart it. golf for me. And I, I, I get in trouble for, for I, I better just stop. We don't want everybody designing the same style because 
I mean, then we would have, you know, we're basically playing on basketball court at the end of the day. Absolutely. And, yeah. But I don't, I just know what I like and I, I tend to, to go that way. And I, I didn't even play Amens and I didn't even play a hoopie. I drove all that way to walk each course for two hours and, and then drive 10 hours or whatever it was to Orlando. Um, it's, it's, you got to know what you like and not everybody, I'm not going to like everybody's work. And, but I understand for the most part, some guys I still can't figure out, but, um, um, I'm intrigued by just the landforms and, and how, when you're, when you're forced to, to move such little soil, I mean, metal club, you've not been out here, but we have a lot of flat holes out here and yet um, the routing is so good in that the way he uses all these landforms, he doesn't have to build up a lot of soil. He doesn't have to find where the soil is to build it up to make the, the green complexes. They're all built into these ridges and it's very natural. I mean, there's number two green. It just feels like it just goes and then it just kind of, falls off on the back um and it but everything's just tied into the ground it's not i mean i refer i mean a good reference towards the opposite is like tilling has to winged foot where everything's built up or or spyglass where everything's built up um quite a bit when you i think it's 10 9 or 10 9 i think is the one that bugs me out or 17 but the, everything just fits the land and then you're on the back and you get to 16. 16 is my favorite hole at Meadow Club. Short par four. And the fairway is forever wide. And we have some members that are like, I don't understand why it's so wide. We should narrow it down. Maybe put a, a center line bunker out there and make it more challenging. But at the end of the day, what the original design of the hole was is there's a creek that runs down the right-hand side. The way the green water falls to the right almost – I would say 75% of your shots need to play to the right side of the fairway towards the creek and bringing that creek in play to get the angle that you to need in the best to stop the yeah. ball on the green. But unfortunately that's, you know, part of that's dealing with, you know, hickory clubs and what have you. And, uh, but at the same time, it's still, it's still more accepting of shots from the right than it is from the left. Uh, and just the way the greens built. But, uh, but here we have this hole, and it's like, it, you know, some people say it's too easy. Well, you know, you better make your birdie then. You know, you got to put it on yourself because if if you make par or bogey, you're losing sh- strokes to the field. And it, if you sit there and you keep keep um, lengthening all the par threes, or even, excuse me, well, the same thing with the par threes for goodness sake. But um, the par, the short par fours, I think, you know, there's quite a few other folks that have done podcasts or architects and whatnot, you know, we, we can't afford to lose the short, short par fours. I mean, there's so much. Oh, I love short. I mean, they're, they're literally my favorite that, I mean, right now that's my favorite short par four because damn it. I mean, if you don't get a par, you are kicking yourself in the teeth for like, like holes, multiple holes. And, you know, and there's always the challenge of birdie, but when you go for birdie, you try driving the green, so many bad things can happen on a really well-designed short par four. I think of the ninth mm-hmm. in Cyprus. I mean, one of my favorite short par fours probably in the world. 
and there is disaster on both sides of the fairway. So it's really a call like, do you hit, want to hit a seven iron and have a wedge into that green, or do you want to go for it? When we were playing out there, a group ahead of us hit two balls. Oh, man, it was real close to the, on the green. I think one made it on the green. There were two that hit that fringe and then rolled back in the fairway. And then one, another guy hit his driver, and it went into oblivion. <laughs> and our group, I think, of our four, I pulled out seven iron because I'm a coward and just took my par. The, I think two of our guys hit it into oblivion. And, I mean, they, they took like a billion on the hole. And then another guy just took took his bogey and walked off of the side. I mean, oblivion is a lot better than the black hole that it used to be with all the ice plant. So it's, it's oh, a lot sure. better. Yeah. But – yeah, I don't even think you'd go no, after it then, no. though, right? It'd just be, yeah, let's tee up another. But, you know, what makes our the short par four that we have, the 16th, is it's it's the 16th hole. So here you have an opportunity to either um, make that birdie or or make a bogey, and it could cost you the rest of your round or the what's left of your round. Yeah. And uh, But, you know, here's the thing. I mean, for, for the longest time – we used to have willow trees between six, 16 and six where the Creek is. So we had like a virtual double hazard there. And then another period of time we were trying to save water. So we grew up the grasses there and changed that. But then I kept coming back to this idea that Robert Hunter talked about metal club and Cypress. Oh, he got me talking Cypress point metal club and, um, in St. Andrews. And, you know, here we have, you know, you know, I believe he was so Colt tried to get McKenzie into the uh, RNA. I think he got in like two years later, and then he was their consulting architect and drew the plan that's all famous and in the back of the book and um, or in the front, whatever. And um, here he is, the consulting architect for St Andrews, is building a golf course at Meadow Club and referencing St Andrews. Um, I think that's pretty good, and um, it it gets me excited. Um, it and it should get a lot of other people excited. Um, and what's an amazing legacy? Yeah, right. I mean, the first course, the first course I worked at was designed by. Um, I I haven't pinned it down, but it was one of the Fallis brothers, which is one degree of separation from some guy named Old Tom Morris, and it's like, it's just amazing, and to be that close to something that, I mean, that's just me being a historian. Anybody else is just like, let's move on. What's for lunch. And, um, uh, for me, it's like, this <laughs> right. is really cool because golf course was built in 28 and it's, you know, metal club was in 27. And then you have, I mean, I'm, I'm always timelining things out, trying to figure out, you know, where people were, what, the, what courses were being built at the same time. And, and, you know, that drives me, um, are we going to talk about Cypress more? Because I've got a story I want to tell. We're actually, that's going to be our next episode. <laughs> okay. We're, we're coming up on the end of this okay, one. Okay, we're, we're already to hour two. We're going to go Cypress Point and Augusta National in our next episode. Uh, let me just, I'll, I'll go to this before okay. we end. Because uh, I have plenty of follow questions. But let's end with okay. this one. In your mind, what is Dr. Alistair McKenzie's greatest legacy? What's he leave us with? I wish I could say Augusta National. Oh, it's so true. We'll get into that in that next. But I, would, in the I mean, next I want to sure. say Cyprus, but I think it's more than that. I think it's um, knowing that a golf course can be a golf course and be as natural as possible, and to have colors. And I mean, 
his perspective as, you know, I mean, he wrote a couple different, I mean, he wrote quite a bit, um, did some golf to articles where he talked about 20 years of greenskeeping and stuff like that. So he definitely, um, you know, you sit there and I talk to more and more architects and, um, and it's like, they've gone and worked at different golf courses and worked on grounds crews and have taken classes. And I mean, it's, it's definitely becoming a more well-rounded, um, position to be an architect. And it, it's, it's fun when I, you know, when you can sit there and talk to some of these guys, um, I'm thinking, um, you know, Snyder and, uh, George Waters and Brett Hochstein work. I think he worked. I think I can't remember all, I mean, just listen to George Waters today, tell all the golf courses he worked at. I was like, he can't be at all those courses. He's not that old. But then here we are. We're talking about Alistair McKenzie and how many golf courses he got to go to and see. And I mean, he's up to, you know, over 300, 400, whatever he wants to say. Yeah. By train, yeah. by and, car, by boat. <laughs> and it's crazy. And But at the same time, yeah, I mean. It is. If he, I mean, just in Australia, I mean, the fact that he was there and everybody, I mean, he's bringing something new and different and, you know, new and different always, you know, to a certain degree, unless he's, it's like obviously snake oil or something, but, um, he brought something, people knew him, knew of him or enough about him. Um, I'm still, I mean, I just found an article by John G. Anderson. I don't know. Have you run across him? Fascinating not. guy. Um, he, John G. Anderson, he played at the 1913 amateur at Garden City against Travers. And he was, he's got a tournament. No, he's, he's got a tournament. He was a member at Wingfoot or something. But um, he wrote an article in 1912 about Alistair McKenzie. And I'm like, what the hell? How did this, 12 or 14? And I'm like, and, and McKenzie was railing about committees. And I'm like, damn it, man. What, what did they do at all, Woodley, in Moortown? <laughs> Were they that bad? And uh, Or maybe it was another course. I think he, he was. We, we got him at a couple different courses. But, um, no, it's just there's so much to the story. Again, um, trying to wrap our heads around it. We can't even do it in, in uh, two podcasts. <laughs> Well, no, and I think you know we should that's be able also to do the it importance. Too. It goes back to the importance of the McKinsey chron- chronology. Correct. Oh right? yeah, I mean this is a, a way where you can actually look at where he went, how he moved around, the letters mm-hmm. he wrote, the clubs he worked at, maybe even the plans he drew to get a better idea of the person behind the the legend, mm-hmm. if you will. Uh, I, I think it's fantastic. I really do. And, and I thank you for being part oh, of it. Oh, of course. I'll, I look forward to uh, the next next section or next uh, episode. Yeah, we're, we're getting right into the juicy stuff <laughs> on the next podcast, right? Everyone's, everyone's going through it. We've gone through two podcasts, folks, and we still haven't got to uh, Cypress Point and Augusta National. We'd just like to tease you. Maybe it'll be the fifth podcast of the series. We don't know. We don't yeah. know. <laughs> I, I, uh, Michael Vesley is a good friend of mine. He was like, there's no way you're doing two podcasts, Tully. And I, I guess three yeah. to four. I think we're going to get it in three. I'm pretty happy. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a fascinating no. story. I just and he's got such a great background, and uh, I mean, who isn't fascinated by Dr. Alistair McKenzie and his yeah. story? I agree. Well, great. We'll end here, 
and uh, we'll pick it up on the next podcast. We're going to kick off right with Cypress Point, followed by the one-two punch going right into Augusta National and get uh, Tully's thoughts on that. So thank you so much for listening, folks. Thank you, Tully, and we will uh, join you on the next pod. You've just listened to part two of the history of Dr. Alistair McKenzie. Please tune in for part three, where we dive into Cypress Point, Augusta National, and his passing. Until then, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. <laughs>